Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. And 2021 for William Dudley has really been something. The former New York Fed president, and we are honored that he's been writing and writing a series of intelligent essays, controversial essays for Bloomberg opinion. Bill Dudley, it's not my chart of the year, but if I take log 10-year yield, and Stan Fisher has always been great about the percentage change move in yield. If we get the Dudley yield moves, these are huge percentage change shocks of this low base. Is that important? I would argue that the percentage change obviously is going to be more elevated when you're you know, very close to zero. So I think it's really the magnitude of the move rather than the percentage change that's really important. Now, if the Fed raises short-term rates to one and a half or two and a half percent, that's still very low in an environment where inflation is running above two percent. Bill, help us out with the playbook for next week. The extra surprise, the additional surprise, the essence of your piece this morning that you expect to see in the summary of economic projections beyond the forecast into the dot plot. What are you looking for, Bill? Well, the Fed is obviously changing their view on what's the appropriate monetary policy. I mean, this is pretty remarkable. A meeting after announcing the taper, they're going to accelerate the taper. So that's an admission that the Federal Reserve was wrong. And as, a, as, a, as part of that process, they're going to have to revise their economic forecast. And that'll be summarized in the uh, summary of economic projections. I think what you're going to see is a higher inflation for 2022, uh, a tighter labor market, and most importantly, much more tightening from the Fed in the forecast horizon, which extends from 2022 to 2024. Last time, uh, 2024, the Fed uh, meeting forecast for federal fund rate was 1.8%. Uh, that's below what the Fed views as neutral. This time, I think they're going to at least get to neutral by the end of 2024. Uh, so you're going to get earlier rate hikes and more rate hikes within their forecast. What's the significance of that just in terms of how quick this cycle will be, Bill? How short it might be? Well, I think it really all depends on how financial markets react to that. I mean, right so far, people have been very comfortable with the Fed uh, beginning to remove monetary policy accommodation. You see uh, 10-year Treasury yields are still uh, very low, below 1.5%. You see the stock market within a, you know, a whisker of its all-time high. So it really depends on how financial markets react to the Fed tightening. I think there is a, a prospect for a bit of a surprise, a bit of discomfort by markets. But I think the Federal Reserve is going to do more uh, than what's currently priced in. You look at the euro dollar futures market, people are saying that the peak in the federal funds rate in the cycle is only going to be about one and a half percent. That's well below what the Fed themselves deem as neutral and well below what the Fed is likely to write down uh, next week. Bill, when you talk about the financial markets reaction, I think of the yield curve and how it's been flattening. Some people saying that it indicates a market expectation for a policy error should the Fed hike rates as much as three times next year, which you think probably should be a base case scenario. What's your read on the yield curve? Well, I'm not really sure why the yield curve is doing what it's doing. I mean, one possibility is that the quantitative easing, the Fed's purchases of assets are just pushing down long-term yields as people don't want to hold uh, deposits at commercial banks and they're search, searching out higher yielding assets. So we may have a bit of a bond bubble just caused by quantitative easing. Obviously, as the quantitative easing process gets run down, then I would imagine bond yields will, will, will retreat to a more normal uh, level. I do think the 10-year Treasury yield at 1.5%, an environment where inflation is running 
you know, five or six percent is very hard to uh, uh, explain in the current circumstances. Bill, can you elaborate a bond bubble from quantitative easing, what that means in terms of the threshold of when people reprice bond yields, according to the Fed, backing away from some of their purchases? Well, I think the, you know, it's going to, it could take a while for this to play out because remember, the Fed is still adding to its balance sheet even as we speak. And the taper, it won't be finished till the March uh, FOMC meeting. And even after that, it'll be quite a bit of time before the Federal Reserve begins to shrink their balance sheet. Only after they've lifted off and raised short term interest rates to say one to 2% will the Fed start to shrink their balance sheet. So the effects of quantitative easing could linger for quite some time. But I do think the bond market is going to be, uh, uh, d- disturbed by the fact that the, f- the peak in the federal funds rate is likely to be quite a bit higher than what's priced mm-hmm. in. And, and that in, in itself will weigh, I think, on bond yields. Bill, I want to get all Stephanie Kelton on you. Are we practicing monetary theory? Are we practicing modern monetary theory? I need to get you in trouble this morning. Help me here. Are we doing it? Well, I, don't think, I don't think so in the sense that I don't think the Federal Reserve is just saying whatever you want to do on the fiscal side, we're going to monetize that debt. Uh, it feels like that a little bit because of the quantitative easing program. But remember, the quantitative easing program was undertaken because short-term interest rates were at zero and that the Fed wanted to add monetary accommodation. And the only way they could do it was by this, these other means. So I think we're, you know, it's more resembling monetary theory than what we've done in the past, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Bill, lucky to have you with us this morning. Just fantastic. And so far this year, you've been right in more ways than one. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Let's talk about this market with Dean Kerner, founder and CEO of Macro Risk Advisors. Dean, your words, the risk-free asset, the bedrock of financial markets looks unwell. Dean, what do you mean by that? Well, I would actually say it's um, displaying signs of chaos. Um, You know, if you look at, we all studied the VIX and the VIX was on the move up, down, uh, traveled quite a bit this last week, um, but um, so many, uh, so much of this whole risk equation is priced off the the risk-free asset class, and I would just argue that um, it's really not risk-free. It might be uh, from a regulatory standpoint, or for how pension funds allocate to risk, how they think about their portfolios. But here's an asset class that number one is is moving around a ton. It's displaying a lot of volatility, um, and its fundamentals are going through a regime shift that is deteriorating. Um, you know, if we think about uh, a default in the typical sense of a, a credit-bearing bond, uh, inflation is effectively a default, a creeping default for a risk-free security. And that's really uh, what we're seeing, right? The, the, the bedrock of everything is eroding in terms of its fundamental outlook. And, you know, when I step back and I look at this, this shot heard around the world uh, the last week, the, the 4% drawdown, which was in, in a lot of ways so meaningful because it encapsulated so many asset classes, crude yeah. uh, uh, cryptocurrencies so much, you know, underneath the surface of it is a risk-free market that's uh, displaying a lot of volatility. And I just think it's something we have to pay a lot of attention to. We've seen the VIX come in, uh, Dean, constructively come in 13 big figures. Most of us have a collective memory of Nirvana of the VIX of a 12, a 13, a 14. Where's the new Nirvana right now for the VIX? Is it a 20 level? Well, I, I think that you can argue that the, the floor uh, has gone up a little bit. Um, you know, I like to say, especially these days, markets 
and especially volatility with with meme stocks and so forth. It's a never say never business. What you thought was achievable, both to the high side and the low side, um, just don't count on it. Um, but but I would say that the floor has probably moved up from perhaps 16 to 18. I, I think this last uh, spasm in markets was was pretty meaningful, especially relative to the slight, the modest degree of drawdown, there was a lot of trepidation. And I think the trepidation comes from the, the sense that we almost got hit on two fronts at once. Uh, one, the, the growth shock, which I think the market's working its way past. Perhaps Omicron's not what we thought it was going to be. Uh, but second, and, and you guys alluded to it, we, we get this inflation data uh, on Friday. This is an ongoing uh, source of uncertainty for markets. And, you know, it's potentially very disruptive. Uh, again, the Fed fighting inflation from above is just worlds apart from the Fed fighting inflation from below, which it's really done for the entirety of the, well, the post-crisis period. Dean, there's a consensus emerging in markets that the more inflation data runs hot now and the more near-term inflation expectations rise, the lower they go over the long term. And this is the flattening yield curve, and this is in the inflation expectations. Do you think that that is wrong? Do you think that anything in the near-term data could shake that consensus? That's a really great and open question. And, you know, as we look at the yield curve flattening this year, uh, it, it's very different from, let's say, the flattening in 2017, which was a extremely low VIX environment, uh, a nine or 10 VIX and a move index, the rate volatility VIX uh, that hovered at all time lows as well. This is much different. This is this is tightening because you have to versus 2017, which is tightening because you can to the curve and especially the back end. Well, yeah, I'm just not convinced that as we tighten and if the Fed gets off zero, it, it completes the taper and starts to initiate turns of tightening. I, I'm not even sure the back end goes up. And I think this will ultimately scare the Fed quite a bit, um, as it did in late 18, early 19. And so you just have to wonder how far we're going to get in the tightening cycle. Um, I just don't see it ultimately impounding itself in, into the long end of the curve. Dean, really thoughtful stuff, as always, sir. Brilliant. Love catching up with Dean Kern at Macro Risk Advisors. Joining us now by chance, Gigi Granville, Senior Scholar, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Gigi, one of the important points in the now beginning three-year ordeal of your profession, this pandemic, what is the significance of the Pfizer announcement? Yeah, this is based on one study. There are going to be many more over the coming weeks that shows that even though there is a significant degradation of vaccine, um, potential vaccine efficacy uh, from uh, in response to Omicron, that there is some protection. It's not a complete escape. And so it's going to likely be boosted um, by having a booster, by having a third dose. The prime minister will be grilled this morning in one part of that in the United Kingdom. And I would editorialize it. It seems to be a lot more chaotic over here than even the gentle chaos of America is on vaccine passports and the vaccine restrictions uh, of the unvaccinated, I should say, in Germany. Does that work? Do vaccine passports work? I think um, they anything that can boost vaccine uptake, uh, get people vaccinated. We still don't know whether two doses is going to be enough uh, to prevent severe disease, um, get pe keep people out of the hospital. Maybe it will be enough to prevent even less severe disease. We just don't know yet. We're, we're going to have to see for uh, what real world data is like. But yes, I mean uh, anything that can get people to uh, to get vaccinated, I'm I'm for as long as they have a choice to not get. Vaccinated. 
vaccinated, even if it's very inconvenient. Gigi, this uh, Pfizer and BioNTech news really highlights the sort of controversy around boosters and the possible need to continue distributing them. A lot of disagreement, even among medical professionals, about the importance for healthy individuals to get boosters. Do you think that data like this actually edifies the case for requiring this as yet another uh, course in the normal course of action with vaccines? Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see what there's going to be more data that's coming, but it does indicate that um, getting that third dose might be much more important than just a nice to have. It might be quite necessary for certain groups in particular, um, people who are more vulnerable to COVID, um, even uh, before, you know, older people, people who are immunocompromised. Um, so it might be uh, it might be something that is is becomes part of the vaccine. It's just a three dose vaccine. Dr. Grunville, do you expect a time when we're always just getting shot up with different vaccines to try to adjust to the different variants, the idea that we're going to be getting uh, vaccinated as frequently as we have been over the past couple of years? I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, in general, there is no disease that's good to get. Um, so uh, I think it would be nice to have more vaccines for other things that we suffer from. But um, but we'll have to see. I hope that we can uh, vaccinate more people in the world and we can stop this uh, right. this, this variant uh, sequence. And John, with Amish Adalto yesterday, as he reviewed, it was a wonderful professional review of the efficacy of the booster. You wonder if that changes with this announcement. Yeah, it's worth pointing out, though, Tom, what we're talking about almost exclusively is vaccine escape. And Gigi, that was only one question of three questions that we wanted answered. How contagious was this variant? How severe was this variant? Aside from whether it escapes the vaccines or not, what have we learned about that, Gigi? Um, there are some indications that are positive that it might be less severe, but I think we really need to hold off and see. Um, we have a different population that has a different vaccination uh, coverage in this in this country. We have a different um, spread of Delta in this country. Uh, I, I think it's best to wait for some more data before saying, oh, it's a mild, uh, a mild variant, uh, because I think some people are saying that, and we just don't have enough information to say that yet. Doctor, we appreciate your insight as always what timely what a timely conversation as well Gigi Gronville there of Johns Hopkins the most well-known West Ham supporter in the city of London now of Hong Kong and now in the city of London briefly Steve Major global head of fixed income research at HSBC <laughs> Steve as part of the exchange to get you to talk about bonds I promise we'd talk about West Ham do you want to start <laughs> there what a performance this season all that matters is that we're above Arsenal and Tottenham. Hopefully it'll be Chelsea as well soon. Beating Chelsea over the weekend. Steve, where's this coming from? Yeah. How much money have they had to spend to do this? I was trying to explain it to Tom over the weekend that this is a West London club, Chelsea, with a ton of money going up against an East London club, West Ham, with less money. How are they getting this done? There's hard work, a good organisation. They've, they've signed some good players. Um, it's not just about buying the best players in the world because, as you can see at PSG and at Man United, it doesn't work. You have to have a structure and a method, a framework. A bit like forecasting bonds. Well, let's forecast bonds right now. 150 on 10's year end, that's the call. 150 year end next year. Then this move, this glide path towards 1%, Steve. Bit of a tweak in the last week or so. Just run us through it. Yeah, the, 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 the thing about the forecasts, uh, John, as you know, it's, it's a point estimate. It's a thankless task. I mean, successful forecasting, uh, it's like the Keynesian beauty contest. You're actually trying to forecast what everybody else is thinking. 
So what I think personally doesn't matter that much is, is whether I can correctly estimate what everybody else is thinking at that point in time. Uh, and we've only got one number to play with. So, so for us, 150 for the 10-year treasury is, is reasonable going into next year because there's now a floor for rates because the Fed has this hawkish bias and that it's possible that they're going to hike. Uh, we've got forecasts for rate hikes. Uh, I'll believe each hike when I see it. And, and, and that's been my view through, throughout this. Um, so the 1% call, we've pushed it into 2023 uh, because uh, we think that if and when they start to hike, they won't get very far. And we're not in the business of forecasting policy errors. If it's so obvious that rates will be hiked and then cut afterwards, the central bank will presumably just not do very much. So, so, so to me, it's, it's really, really difficult to believe that rates are going to get anywhere near the levels reached in the last cycle. And so when you look at the terminal rate like that, it's probably going to have a one handle. And that's why 1% in the longer run is, is more like the fair value. 10 year treasuries. I would love to have dinner, Steve, with you and Bill Dudley, former Fed president of the New York uh, office of the Federal Reserve. He has been talking about how the end rate for the Fed could be three or four percent based on how hot the economy is, based on how high inflation has been and will likely be. What would you say to him? Well, I get very few invitations, Lisa, so thanks very much. Uh, next <laughs> week or the week after. Okay. The, um, the, It'd be interesting to know the basis of that. And, and look, we have to respect his opinion, but the, it'd be interesting to see how we get to three or four. And uh, has this calculation included the sensitivity of the economy to the amount of debt? And has it included global factors about the policy direction in China or Europe and Japan? I mean, does anybody watching this at the moment think that China's going to hike rates or, or ECB or Bank of Japan. So, so pres presumably, we need to, to incorporate the longer term structural variables like the debt overhangs demographics, distribution of wealth, technology, and we need to think globally. And, and once we've done that, then I'd like to hear how it's possible to get to three or 4%, because on our reckoning, mm -hmm. that's going to be very difficult. Some people say this time is slightly different, Steve, because of the money that was basically printed by so many economies, by the fact that people got checks directly. They are spending those checks, and you're seeing the consumer spending component of the economy absolutely surge, certainly in the United States. Why is that not enough, given where inflation is, given the read that we're expected on Friday, given wages, to get us over the hump of the demographics that you speak? Yeah, so first of all, I think there's some double counting on these money supply estimates. Uh, a lot of the money that has been created through the QE is anyway stuck in banks. It exists as reserves. So it depends on your definition of money supply. I don't think it's gone up, actually. It depends on how you measure it. The other thing is the fiscal impulse of 2021 goes into reverse in 2022. So a rational expectations view of all of this would say, Let's be careful. This isn't free money. Uh, someone has to pay for it. The 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 U.S. government has a, has effectively borrowed from the children to pay their parents. And if anyone thinks that's clever, then then fine. Yeah. But I don't get it. Um, it, it, it was a huge um, bridge to tomorrow, but it it it, it doesn't look very stimulative. It's not going to be stimulative <clears throat> when we get into two thousand twenty-two. Steve Major, Deutsche Bank frames out through George Saravellis and their FX desk, not a curve inversion, 
but a possibility of one. Do you have a scenario call where two-year goes out and goes above the 150 level on your 10-year call? Yeah, part of the reason for our recent forecast was because the two-year treasury, one year forward, was trading at 120 at the end of last week. Mm -hmm. And so the, the forwards have got a lot of cover for those rate hikes. And in fact, in the forwards, there is an inversion already. Right. If you go out to 10-year plus, if you go one year, two year forward for the 10s, 30s, you, get, you, you can see an inversion. If you, get, if you look at a chart for the last 30 or 40 years, inversions only happen two or three times. Exactly. So, you're, so, so to me, I'd be fading that move. And what we've been doing is looking at steepeners in the ultra-long segment. And, and you get paid in terms of carry and roll. Okay. And they, they, ha they haven't gone wrong in the last few weeks. So they've actually been holding steady. So, so I, I think uh, fading the inversion is important. Um, and we, we have to look at the forwards. As I say, that two-year rate is already pretty high in the forwards. And we had a hawkish surprise in June, right. followed by a, by a big hawkish surprise in September. And next week, some people are calling for an even bigger hawkish surprise. I say... Once bitten, twice shy. Okay, so the, we have the, Steve. The, the, this is really yeah. important, Steve Major, as we go into the sophistication of your market, which is to look to the future. If you were having a cup of coffee this morning with uh, Jerome Powell, how would you explain the forwards to him to frame his press conference December 15th? Well, he gets it. And I, and I guess um, he also gets the Maradona effect. So he could he could talk to the Bank of England governor the current one and the previous ones to talk about that. The Maradona effect to non-football fans is using yeah. the credibility uh, to, to drive the, the expectations. Maybe, maybe getting hawkish just when inflation is about to crash around their ears is a way of right. tightening policy and meaning they haven't got to yeah. hike very much. John, who's Maradona? Oh, Tom, <laughs> no, no, I can't even pretend you mean that. <laughs> You're not serious. No, You're, was... Come on. Diego Maradona. Yes, I know about Jason. What's his name? One of the best football players in history. Tom, come on. And what Steve means by that is Diego Maradona would faint left, faint right, drop the shoulder left, drop the shoulder right, Tom. Look like he's going to go one way, look like he's going to go the other, but ultimately just go straight forward. Which is when we talk about Bank of England, the Maradona effect. It's the Bank of England suggesting they might do one thing or the other, then ultimately do nothing. Steve, good luck of the weekend. Fantastic to have you back Steve, in town in you. London. Brilliant. Just love it, Steve. Thanks, it's been guys. too long. Thank you, sir. Take Steve good care. Major. Season's greetings. Of HSBC you. to you, sir. Thank you very much. It is not all gloom. We saw that from JP Morgan today with a 45-page outlook, adamant about recovery, adamant about a normalization. Someone that understands this is the president and chief executive officer of Hilton, Chris Nassetta, on the recovery. I have no real worries. I mean, every time, you know, we've sort of, as we've been recovering, if you look at, you know, the, the minute people start to feel like we're through the crisis, the demand for meetings and events, which is the longest lead, skyrockets. People are, people are dying to get out. Kristen Rosetta out of the UVA combine there talking, of course, peer-to-peer -peer with David Rubenstein and an operating officer within this pandemic. David, I think about a, a moment I had with Jonathan Tish of Lowe's earlier this year of maintaining optimism in travel, in hotel. What did you learn about the trench warfare of this pandemic from Mr. Nasetta? 
Well, obviously, the hotel industry suffered enormously, as did the uh, the entire lodging industry and the travel industry, the cruise industry. But they're coming back. Uh, what's coming back more rapidly is is uh, recreational kind of or, or vacation-related travel. Business travel is not coming back as quickly, in part because business people have learned they can do a lot on Zoom. So they're hopeful that that will come back, but hasn't yet come back to the same extent that vacation or leisure travel has come back. Are you suggesting within the grind and the many, many people under you at Carlisle that David Rubenstein is going to do your acclaimed transactions by Zoom? Well, there's no doubt that the private equity world has done a lot through Zoom over the past year and a half. Uh, clearly, a lot of people are beginning to travel again. I've traveled a fair bit in, in recent uh, uh, weeks or so, but it, clearly it's just not coming back at the level that it was mm -hmm. before, and it'll take some time. But the lodging industry has done reasonably well uh, in terms of its stock performance. The stock performance at the height of the pandemic uh, were, were all-time lows for the travel industry and the lodging industry. Now they've come back to near record highs in terms of their stock. So the market is anticipating that they will see travel coming back. How much is Chris Nassetta, the Hilton president and CEO, anticipating that business travel will resume in the same kind of way and putting money behind it by making acquisitions in some of the more beaten up areas in larger cities, in convention centers? Well, what they do is, remember, the way Hilton, Hilton is the second biggest hotel operator. Marriott is the biggest. They have thousands of hotels. Mostly they operate them um, uh, uh, for other people that are owners, and a lot of it is franchise operations. They take a fee or some kind of royalty on, on the name Hilton. Uh, but it's coming back uh, reasonably well. They are making some uh, investments to get hotels back. But the biggest problem they have right now is getting labor to come back. Remember, a lot of people um, lost their jobs. A lot of people were laid off. And now they have to get these people back as hotels are coming back, more, people, more and more people coming back to stay at the hotels. You have to get workers. And a lot of workers are not coming back. They don't like those jobs or they, they are, they're taking other types of jobs. So it's a real labor problem. And to some extent, the prices are going up in hotels because you've got to pay for higher price labor than you did before. And hotels are trying to figure out what they can cut, whether it's perhaps not changing the towels for as many nights or other areas that they can basically reduce costs in order to have fewer employees and to keep costs lower for consumers. Where are some of the areas that are, costs are getting streamlined that you talked about uh, with the president, with the head of Hilton? Well, uh, if you're staying at a top-line hotel, one of their Waldorf Astoria hotels or one of their, their real um, more luxurious hotels, you're going to get all the services you had before because people are paying very high prices for that. But if you're staying at their lower-grade hotels, the ones where you can get by on maybe $125, $150 a night, uh, you may not get daily uh, towel service. You may not get uh, the free breakfast that you had before. And room service has probably been cut back, if not eliminated, in some of those hotels. So it's, it's really mm -hmm. the lower grade, you're not getting the services back yet. That will come back in time, but they're experimenting. Maybe people don't really need hotel uh, uh, services they had before. Maybe the things will be different. But right now, uh, the hotel industry is coming back. Its stock per performance is in really, really good shape. But the bottom line is still, I would say, 20 to 30 percent below where it was uh, at the peak before the pandemic. David, one more question. And of course, this is perhaps my last question to you of 2021. I want you to look into next year. And as you look at the D conglomeration for different reasons of General Electric, of Toshiba, uh, and a few others out there as well. What is your tone on combinations or decombinations for 2022? 
Well, I think you're going to see a lot of acquisitions, but I think conglomerate type acquisitions are probably not going to be in favor. The, you know, many large companies are deconglomerating, as you know, and people are trying, therefore, to have companies focus on one or two areas of expertise. But I do think that interest rates will be a little bit higher next year, but not so high that, to, to deter people from making acquisitions. The acquisitions industry is still pretty strong right now. David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Peer-to-peer, -peer, just very, very strong uh, this year. Look for Peer-to-peer -peer with David Rubenstein, 9 p.m. Uh, in New York with the Chief Executive Officer of Hilton. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.